Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. It's officially the coldest morning of the year, right? So I figured we could officially talk about the coldest topic in the Bible. Sin. It seems appropriate. And already some of you are thinking, because you might be a guest with us, you might be thinking, why are they talking about that? Some of you might have looked this up in the internet and now your, your heart's already thinking, sinking, oh no, I've gone to one of those churches. Uh, let, you, let me assure you, we don't talk about all of this all that often. In fact, as we said last week, this is probably the first time that we've preached messages specifically on sin in like 15 to 20 years in this place. But it's important to talk about it's important to talk about, and here's why we're looking at all of this. You know, I want you to pause for a moment in this one moment that you do get in a week and to think about the dynamic of the relationships that you have in the various spheres of, spheres of your life this week. I mean, could it be that some of you have been dealing with a narcissistic boss? Are some of you dealing with family members that are tearing themselves apart? Have you seen people that are racked with guilt? Are you seeing people that have been overcome with loneliness? What do you see around you? And can I put it to you that most people that I talk to on this topic of sin, I don't describe it as that, by the way. Most people when I talk to about sin, they, they feel, they they sense that there is a soul sickness in the world around us. That somehow this is not how it is meant to be from the smallest little niggles to the atrocities that we see overseas. And so the question is, well, what is that? You know, that these things, the bad deeds, the stuff that we see, the atrocities, the hurt, the pain, those things are just the, they're just the snotty nose of humanity. We know that the snotty nose is not the reason for the cold. There's something deeper, something lurks beneath. And the way that the Bible describes that is as sin. And so we've been uncovering over the past couple of weeks what sin looks like. Uh, we've been redefining it because it's so often misunderstood, uh, not only by people uh, out there in the world who don't follow God, but by Christians themselves. We understand sin is to be merely a list of the bad things that you shouldn't do in the Bible. And yet what we saw last week and what we'll see this week, that sin is far more nuanced than that. It's deeper than that. It's more powerful than that. Last week we saw that we define sin as self-denial. That is that humans have this infinite capability to not know a truth that they really do know because they don't want to know. Because that truth is too inconvenient, uncomfortable or even painful. And this morning we're going to define sin in a different way, not as self-denial. But it stems from this verse in verse 7 from the story of Cain and Abel, a very famous story in the Bible. Verse 7, God himself defines it here. He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. So can you see the imagery there? The Hebrew word is referring to uh, the sort of word that would describe a tiger or a lion or a predator. And so in other words, God is saying there, sin is a stalker. Sin is not just self-denial, but a stalker. And so that's what we'll see this morning. We'll see that sin is a stalker, uh, the strategies to help evade the stalker, 
and the sweetness of God. The stalker, the strategies, the sweetness. This morning, sin is a stalker. Verse 7, sin is crouching at your door. What God is saying here as we're being taught is that the nature of sin is such that it wants to hide itself from you. It wants to crouch from you. It's predatory in nature. It's a stalker. Look, there's no greater stalker if you want to get an image of your mind. Most of you think of lions and tigers. I'm not. I'm thinking of the T-1000. We've got some Terminator 2 fans, obviously, down in the front row here. Of course, the, the scariest villain of, I think, of any Hollywood movie was the T-1000 or the Mercury Man, as many people knew him in Terminator 2, Judgment Day. But what made him so scary, what made him so horrifying is that he was a shapeshifter. He was solid Mercury that could shift himself into any form of shape in the room. He could look like certain people. He could look like an appliance. He could shift his shape into whatever it would be. That was the first thing that made him scary. The second thing that made him scary was he was relentless, right? Fellow T2 fans, this guy would not stop. He would go through walls. He'd go through cars. He'd go through bars in a jail. He would not stop. He was the ultimate stalker. How can the T1000 show us what sin is today? Here's, here's what he did really well as a stalker. He hid himself. Sin hides itself. Here's the first way that sin hides itself. It hides itself intellectually. Here's what I mean by that. The way that sin hides intellectually is like this. It's the person that might be sitting here this morning going, Sam, this is the 21st century, dude. I mean, are you seriously talking about that word sin? I, I, don't, I don't have an issue with that. It's, it's archaic. It's old. It's, it's culturally irrelevant. You know what that is? That's sin hiding. That's sin hiding from you. Now, not only is sin hiding in the 21st century under who who talks about this anymore, but seriously, um, but more seriously in relation to our view of evil in the world. Look at the atrocities that we see in the Middle East. Look at the horrible things on YouTube that are happening. We see that horror come out of that. And what do we say over here? We say to ourselves, deep in our hearts or even verbally, thank you, Lord, I, w- I would never be like that. Um, there's a, a scene somewhere in an Adams Family movie and the Adams Family go to a Halloween costume party, which is quite ironic. Little Wednesday Adams comes and she turns up in just a very normal dress. And they said, honey, where's your costume? And she says, I am in costume. They said, well, what are, you dressed up, uh, uh, what are you dressed up as? And she said, a homicidal maniac. <laughs> they dress like everyone else. <laughs> the way that sin crouches intellectually is that we look at it and say, I would never be like that. But friends, who are we? And what are those that commit these atrocities apart from flesh, blood and spirit? We're biologically the same. And so who is to say that we would not do the same if we were in exactly the same circumstances? C.S. Lewis, the great writer, once said that there are two men that get angry. One spills the blood of thousands and the other people laugh at him. (laughs) Do you see what he's saying there? That there is something deep within each person that given the right context and the right variables at the right time can eventually run out of control to the extent that it wreaks havoc in the world. The way that sin hides itself is that in our 
blessed in God's gracious circumstances that we are in a context in which it is not allowed to run as, as rampant in our lives. But it still can, and that's the point I want to get to now. It still can run rampant, and let's explore a bit deeper how it works. Sin and stalkers, they not only hide from you, but here's what Mercury Man does really well. Sin and stalkers, sin camouflages itself in everyday mundane things in order to pounce on you. That's what stalkers do. Mercury Man hides in the corner, looks like a toaster, and then out comes a sword and kills someone. Frightening. Sin, what it means is sin's never just sitting in a corner of your life. Sin never just sits there and does nothing until it gets poked. It's, it's waiting, it's stalking, it's camouflaging. And sin always camouflages itself in virtuous, good and insignificant traits. Oh, here's one. Oh, I'm not a workaholic, I'm just productive. I'm not on the edge of murderous, I'm just righteously angry. So can you see then why God says in verse 7, Hey, friend, Cain, master this or it will master you. Get a grip on this, get a hold on this. And here's what it means. We are always on an edge, we're always on a tipping point when it comes to what the Bible defines as sin in our life. It's like, it's like we're working on a car underneath on, on the side of a 45-degree hill and we haven't chocked the wheels and it's being held there merely by the handbrake. And I'll show you what I mean by that. In the, the very earliest of stages, pride, bitterness, self-pity, anger, all of these things in its earliest stages, you've got a little bit of control over it, don't you? You, you feel like you can control it, and that's like saying, well, you can control the car when you start to see it creak down the driveway. If at least you can rip the handbrake on, there's not enough momentum and it stops. But when God says, master this or it will master you, what is interesting is that when you give in to a little bit of sin, it creates a force in your life that takes off. Have you ever, have you ever noticed how people seem to reap what they sow? I mean, like, why is it that the gossipers are always the ones that get gossiped about? Why, why is it that it's the cowards who always get deserted? Why is it that the ones that hate are always hated? Maybe it's because Taylor Swift said the haters going to hate, 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 hate. I don't know. But we reap what we sow because there's, there's a force to sin that, that suddenly you're not controlling it. It's controlling you. And suddenly we see that sin's not a deed, but it's a power. And at some stage, way back down, way back there, way back when, these people gave in to something a little bit. And guess what? The handbrake couldn't stop it. It's off. I saw this. I saw, this, uh, I saw this in a pastor that I met. His testimony was um, quite confronting. I was in um, a master's class over in the States as I was studying, and I turned to him and I said, uh, what, do you, what do you do? What church are you from? He says, I'm, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for, for a year. I said, oh, yeah, what, what did you do before that? He said, I was a producer in the adult film industry. And as he began to tell his story to the rest of the class that night in his, 
testimony for us all. It all started with a little glance. And then a little bit more time on the computer. And then the stuff on the computer wasn't thrilling enough. So it went to the next level where he thought, well, I'll get even harder stuff. And then it was even more challenging from there. And that still wasn't doing its thing. So, well, I'll just get into the industry. He had a wife. He had a kid. He was a pastor's kid. And he told the story of how he would travel the United States in his vengeance in some weird and sick way against God during that time that he would look for pastor's daughters in which to recruit into the things that he was doing. What the, what the heck is that? The handbrake couldn't stop it. And the car took off down the driveway. And thankfully God intervened in his life, but not without destroying a number that haunts him still today. Sin camouflages itself. And what it means for you is it will always look smaller and far less insidious than it really is. It will do things that will hurt you and hurt others if you let it get out of control. So the question is, how do we stop this thing? How do we put the handbrakes on this stuff when it happens in our lives? Uh, Two ways that I think we can do that. Here's the first one. If sin is a predator, if sin is stalking you, if sin is after you, then here's the first thing you do. Whether you're Christian, non-Christian, you can do this. You don't need to be a believer to do this. You just assume that something is after you. Have you ever noticed that... You, you only get horror movies with stupidly naive people in it. <laughs> uh, the seat is like this. The, the lights have gone out. Freddy is on the loose. The rumour is that the school friends, some of them is, have, have, have disappeared. There's no light. The house is dark. It's windy. It's rainy. Poof, the front door is busted open. A couple of friends are cuddling together upstairs. They hear creaks downstairs. Ed Sunbrightspark in the film says, I think we should go down there. (laughs) There's no horror movies without stupidly naive people. (laughs) Even Even if you're definitionally not agreeable to the word sin, you think it's archaic. Look, please do not be horror movie naive. Don't don't go down there. There's a great line in the Psalms that says, Oh Lord, cleanse me of my hidden faults. It's, It's a general attitude that says there's something after you. Would you please, friend, understand the danger? Everyone, including myself, more so myself as a pastor, as you've just heard from the story of my other friend. We all have hidden things that are coming after us. Please don't assume that nothing is there. But here's the second thing. Here's the second more. That's a more general way. Here's a specific way. Assume that there's a grain of truth to criticism. Uh, This is really helpful for me as a pastor. There's always two things you have lots of as a pastor. Coffee and constructive criticism. (laughs) Now, this is the great tension for me because... (sighs) When you're working with that, the tendency, and I'm sure you guys would never do this, but the tendency is either to lash back or to close off. Oh, it's all nonsense. Oh, they're, just, they're, they're, they're being crazy. They're not seeing it right. It's all nonsense. 
But if you could assume, maybe it is 90% nonsense half the time, but if you can assume that there's 10% truth, here's the thing, we heard this last week in self-denial, the character flaws, the things in your life that you can't see, they're the things that are dangerous. And so therefore, if you assume in that constructive criticism about you that there could be something there, now you have one of the best ways to avoid being pounced on by sin. You don't see it because it's hiding. So assume that it must be there. And so by definition, it's these crouching sins in your life. That's the summary of all of this. It's the hidden ones, the small ones, the the crouching nature of it all. It's the ones you don't see that will take you out as long as you look at workaholism as conscientiousness. As long as you look at your grudge as moral outrage. As long as you look at materialism as ambition or arrogance or healthy self-assertion. As long as you look at your obsession with looks as grooming. (laughs) You're vulnerable. You're out in the cold. You're in denial. So as we finish, what what hope is for me then? This is... Wonderfully uplifting each week, isn't it? We get to this point. <laughs> what, hope is for, what hope is there for us then? Hey, look, what I want to do before we finish I, is I want to debunk a couple of stereotypes about God and the way that he deals with sin before we leave this place. And it's right here in this passage. It's beautiful. It's incredible. You see, I think the average Sydney sider has two different views of God. Uh, the first view is that God is a God of judgment, that he sits up there and he's cloud with the judge's robe on and he's just looking at every, any opportunity to smite people and to fly swat them the minute they do anything wrong. Or the other view that the average Sydney sider has of God is, that, is this, and most Christians have a view of this, oh, the God, God of the New Testament, well he's all love, but the God of the Old Testament, well he's just all fire and brimstone. Now, this is as Old Testament as you get. Genesis, the beginning. And take a look at what we see. Look at God's dealing with Cain. You know what we see in there? We see, we see in there a wonderful counsellor who's going to show you a perfect mix of justice and mercy. God does something rarely any Christian does on this world. Justice and mercy. And here's how he does it. The first thing that he do, does is that he first he initiates relationship. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now, the nuance of the word there of being downcast meant that he was literally depressed. He's saying, Cain, why are you in depression? He, uh, he engages him. This is, not a, this is not a God who was all dressed up in his robe waiting for, for Cain to murder and said, gotcha. He's, see, this is before the murder has happened. He's intervening. He's saying, what is going on? Why are you angry? Why are you downcast? This is a God who was with him. This is a God of early intervention. Here's the second thing that he does. Verse 7 that we've heard, you must master this Cain. In other words, he affirms him. He says, this is crouching at your door. You've got to get a hold of this. He's saying, buddy, I know you can get a hold of this. I know that you've got it in you. He affirms him and he says, you have the power with my help to move beyond this. Here's where God comes in as the counsellor. And see this? What's the difference between a teacher and a counsellor? A teacher assumes that the other party doesn't know what they're talking about. A counsellor assumes that they do, but they just don't know it. And so what does God do? He doesn't tell him, don't sin, don't murder. He says, why? Why are you angry? Hmm. Why, why are you feeling this way? Why are you? He's counselling him. 
And so here we have this wonderful picture of this balanced God dealing with sin in a way that is the perfect balance. On one hand of justice saying, Cain, I can't handle this. I can't stand this. We see his punishment later on. The blood of your brother cries from the ground. I can't stand this. I refuse to deal with injust. Uh, I refuse to let injustices in the world go unnoticed. So I'll be justice. But at the same time, even in, even in the childishness of his repentance, remember the line in the verse that we read? When God, again, as the counselor says, Cain, where's your brother? And he says, what? Am I my, am I my brother's babysitter? He's so unrepentant, but there's just one grain of repentance in that that God says, okay, I will protect him for the rest of his life. What is that? It's justice and it's mercy. Now, when we talk about sin, this is where we Christians muck it up. Because on one hand, uh, some Christians are all mercy and they turn a blind eye and it doesn't matter. But even worse, how many Christians have we know or seen or heard that are all justice? I was going to use an expletive. Then those crazy people over there in Westboro Baptist Church in the United States. Statements like, God hates fags. That you're all going to hell. The most ridiculous representation of what we've just read in here. We worship a God who, yes, he can't let these deeds go unnoticed, but we worship a God of mercy. Can you see why we need to understand sin in this way, friends? Christians, there will always be a self-righteous divide in our hearts that will come up and as we start to play God with people that we think that we can get this balance right. And we never will. We never will until we understand that that anyone who has become a Christian is, is like a Cain that has recognised that there is, they've sensed it. There was something deep within them that was never right. We've sensed things that, that haven't been right with God, that we've done things that aren't right with God. A Christian is real enough to understand that and then they come to the point to go, well, what do I do with that? And if you're anything like me, you, in the early days of Christianity, you go through life going, well, okay, well, I'm sorry, God, I'll never do that again. And then a couple... A couple of months, a couple of years later, I'm sorry, God, I'll never do that again. And I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry, God, I'll never do that again. <laughs> and, then, and then it hit me one day. It's like, well, how long can I go on like this? I mean, is he going to still be merciful when I get to 50? <laughs> and then there's that great line, uh, your, your, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. God says, I can't let the injustice go unnoticed. So we as Christians, we don't look to the able of this story, but we look to a much greater able. There is a, there is a brother that in the spiritual sense as Christians, they say that we murdered. There is a brother who was totally innocent and yet was cut to the ground and his blood was shed. That older brother is for us as Christians is Jesus Christ. And it seems obscure to say that his blood cries from the ground. What does it mean? It means that when I'm, when I'm at the judgment seat of God one day and I meet him face to face, you see, we're still about justice. The great judge that will be looking down upon me and then the, the great advocate and the counsellor, Jesus Christ, will, will look at the, the great judge and said, Judge, well, here is my brother Sam. Has he lived a good life? Yes. Has he, could he have done things better? Yes. Was he sinless? No. Could he have obeyed you more? Yes. 
But, but judge, you're a good judge and you're a just judge. And so uh, what I'm asking is that I want you to accept him. And, but I'm not pleading mercy on his case. You're a good God and you're a just God and you're a right God. And your, your law says that there should be no double jeopardy. And I died for him. My blood was spilt for him. My blood cries out from the ground for him. And so I demand not mercy. I demand justice. I demand that you let him in. It has been paid. And that's how... As a Christian, I realise, even when I do get to 50 in a few more years, <laughs> just a few, I'm older than I look. <laughs> I don't have to keep going over the same thing again. I don't have to keep feeling guilty about all of this. So, friend, it is after us. And God has made a way with us, a way that is both just and merciful through Jesus Christ. My prayer, my deep prayer for you this morning is maybe just maybe your perspective on sin has changed just a little. Maybe we've knocked a stereotype of God out of the park this morning. It's after you. It's coming for you. It's a predator. It's the, it's the mercury man. It's hunting you down. He wants to devour all of your life. Are you generally aware of it? Are you specifically aware of it? How do we solve this as we finish this morning? It is the gospel according to Terminator 2. We know it, right? John and Sarah, they're in deep trouble. The T-1000 is after them. It's hunting them down. It's a predator that's far more powerful than, than they could have ever imagined. And Sarah Connor wakes up in a jail. They see the T-1000 coming down the hallway. He's got a gun in his hand. They think they're safe because he's behind the bars. He morphs Mercury style through the bars of the jail as he is about to pick up the gun and to take her out. The other Terminator that has been sent into the world from the future reaches out his hand. In, in terror, she looks up at him, not knowing what it is, and he utters the words to her, Come with me if you want to live. It's the gospel according to T2. Right? There's a T1000. It's called sin. It's morphed into the background of your life in the form of a toaster or the form of achievement, the form of success. You don't know what it looks like. There's a predator that's far more powerful than you can handle on your own. And you come to a moment like this and you hear about a guy called Jesus Christ, another Terminator. Not of people, but of sin and of death that has been sent into the world from the future. And in that moment of your desperate need, he holds his hand out to you this morning and he says, come with me if you want to live. Let's pray. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.